Can I just tell you the heroes that pull things out of dumpsters are basically the people who built our entire broadcast collection. Most of our collections, with a few exceptions, came from dumpster diving sound engineers or reporters or just former staff members at radio stations who saw them dumping all this stuff out when they changed formats or ownership and crawled in there and saved it and then donated it to us. That is how broadcast history has been saved. Welcome to Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein, and I should let you know right off the bat that that clip of Laura Schnitker uh, praising the dumpster divers of radio history is one of my favorite things we've ever had the privilege to record here on Radio Survivor. But it's a bit of a, a, a mis misleading because today's episode is all about a collection, a very special collection, that did not have to be saved uh, via dumpster. It was, in fact, donated directly uh, to Laura Schnitzker's archive at the University of Maryland. And we're talking today about a, an incredible uh, series of tapes, really um, countless, but there is a count. There is a number, but it's so much that uh, one person uh, could spend uh, half their life going through one-tenth of it. It's the National Federation of Community Broadcasters Program Archive, uh, shows from the 60s and 70s from community radio stations around the country. And, well, let's start here. Let's start with a clip from the archive, from shows, of two gentlemen who were key in founding a lot of these community radio stations. First, we're going to hear from Lorenzo Malam, and then we're going to hear from Jeremy Lansman. When a broadcaster uh, has the daring and the force to do unusual and controversial programs, um, that they won't be uh, called down for some of these programs that might be a little strong or a little tough for some people to take. Uh, it's our contention that there have been other programs on commercial television stations which are equally as strong and they've not been called down and that the, it's possible that the um, that the forces of law and order and government were picking on a very small station in a very medium-sized market in order to make them a test case. So that was Lorenzo Malam talking about uh, how one of the radio stations he helped found, CRAB, K-R-A-B, in Seattle, Washington, was uh, facing... Challenges from the FCC that he saw in a broader context, in a wider historical context. And up next, we're going to hear from Jeremy Landsman, who also helped found Crab, among other stations, speaking with an unidentified uh, radio station manager at uh, station KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. That makes me wonder uh, if we're putting out such good radio, and I, I think we're doing it already. At least that's what people say whether we will affect the, the media right here, the, the uh, other radio stations. Well, my experience has been that no matter what you do, you expect you do influence. If you do anything new and enough people like it, other stations will start doing it after a while. That was Jeremy Landsman speaking in 1969 about the influence of community radio on the broader medium, on other radio stations. Well, let's jump in now to that uh, interview, to today's feature interview with my colleagues, Paul Rees-Mendel and Jennifer Waits. Hi, Laura. I'm, I'm so excited that you're here to talk to us about the National Federation of Community Broadcasters Program Archive. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Can you start by telling us what this is? <laughs> what is the archive? 
Well, um, it's part of our um, public broadcasting collections at the University of Maryland Libraries. And the National Federation of Community Broadcasters um, is a grassroots organization founded in 1975. And so we have the most of the records from their history. So we have something like 80 linear feet of um, printed materials, and then we have over 5,000 audio reels and cassettes from their program exchange. And it was actually the program exchange that started the NFCB in the first place. Um, so it was founded by uh, somebody who were his name was Bill Thomas. He worked um, at KBDY in St. Louis in the early 70s, and he got the idea to um, record his programs and share them with other community stations because there wasn't a whole lot of communication among them in those days. And so they kind of started up this really um, simple way of sharing content with each other, and pretty soon they started sending out a newsletter um, about the program exchange. And this kind of just snowballed, and then a few years later they had their very first conference where they decided to found the organization, the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. And how did it end up, how did this collection end up at the University of Maryland? It was part, it was being held by Pacifica Radio Archives um, for, I'm not sure for how long prior to coming to Maryland, um, but I imagine somewhere around 10 or 20 years they had it. And for whatever reason, they couldn't continue to take care of it or they didn't have the space for it, but they decided to donate. This was the president of uh, NFCB made the decision to move the collection from Pacifica to the University of Maryland. And that happened in the mid-1990s. And can you give me an overview sort of of the types of items that are in the collection? Well, being that it's from community radio stations all over the country, the content really runs the gamut of all manner of subjects and formats. Um, so uh, there's a lot of like public affairs and news programming, speeches, um, presentations, lectures, roundtables, interviews. There's also a ton of music. And all of it kind of represents um, marginalized communities or just things that you, you didn't hear on commercial radio and that you still don't really hear on commercial radio, like music from all reaches of the world, every corner of the earth, um, and the voices of people who are still not very well represented in commercial broadcasting. So people of color and the LGBTQ community and immigrants, um, Native Americans, so, yeah, it's a really, really unique collection. There's no other programming like it, to my knowledge, in any other archive. And these archives wow. of, of these radio programs um, span the decades from the 70s and 80s, 90s as well? Yeah, yep. Um, actually, they go back to the mid-60s, and I think there's a few from the early 80s, so that's pretty much the bulk uh, time frame. So you just completed a massive project to digitize this material. Can you tell me why it was digitized and how that was how that was made possible? Yeah. So I had my eye on this collection for years. Um, it takes up an entire shelf range um, where we keep our audiovisual materials at Hornbeek Library. And these are like tattered boxes of seven inch reels. And they caught my eye because they're so colorful looking. And they also look like they're in rough shape and needed work. 
And once I realized it was part of this great community broadcasting collection, I thought this should be something that people have access to for sure. Um, because like I said, these voices are still not very well represented in media history. So with my colleague, Robin Pike, who is the manager of our um, digitization services, we applied for a grant from CLEAR, that's Council on Library and Information Resources. Um, and this was a Recordings at Risk grant. And these are moderately sized grants that are accessible to institutions of all sizes. And so we were granted about $21,000 to digitize a portion of this collection. So that bought us about 600 uh, reels. And it paid for their digitization. It also paid for um, the student labor that did the enhanced metadata when we got the digital files back and also the metadata librarians who helped us upload it to um, UMD Digital Collections. And enhanced metadata in this case means yeah. that they listened to it or they read the information written on the reels or on the boxes and wrote that stuff down. So who's speaking, when they're speaking, and what they're speaking about? Pretty much. The metadata that was written on the containers, who's speaking, where it was produced, how long it is, in many cases was not accurate sure. or just really, really incomplete. So we could only um, put so much into our initial inventory and so, yeah, when we got the files back, they all had to be listened to so that um, all of that metadata could be updated and made accurate before we posted these online. And what do you think makes this entire collection so significant? Just, you know, you have perspective about the types of collections that are out there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, are there, are there other collections similar to this? And is it completely different from from other things that people can find. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I had been saying that, no, this is super unique and I don't think there's anything else like it, but I'm beginning to suspect that there's actually a lot of collections that feature the voices of marginalized people um, in radio history, but they're just really not accessible because it does take so much labor and resources in order to be able to digitize them. So I guess I'm hoping with this that maybe we'll inspire more people to to see if they can find some grant money. I mean, you can never digitize everything, but to be able to do some is really encouraging. And um, I think, I hope when people listen to these that they'll feel inspired to dig for more. And, you know, if they have friends who work as archivists or audiovisual archivists to to encourage them to pursue funding and to pursue support for making them publicly accessible. And was that a big part of, of the grant access? Was access a key part of the, the project? Was that you really wanted this material to be heard by other people? Yes, and you absolutely have to make that clear in the grant application um, exactly how you're going to provide access. And it has to be like the end product has to be as accessible as possible. So you, the fewer restrictions that you place on that access, the better. So for a lot of our audiovisual collections, because we don't have, we don't own the copyright, we have to restrict their streaming to campus only. Hmm. Um, and we didn't want to do that with this collection. So we didn't, they're How publicly exciting. accessible. Yeah, exciting, yeah. yeah. Laura Schnicker, you are the curator for the Broadcast Archives at the University of Maryland. And I, I wanted to kind of follow up on 
sort of the historical place of these archives. This is the archives of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. These are tapes of programming that was produced in community radio stations from the 1960s through the through the uh, 1980s. Stations around the country sharing their programs with each other. Right, because yes. I think what people... It's hard to remember now in, in the internet age or even the satellite age that at this time, especially in the 70s, in the 60s, uh, this is the only way in which most community radio stations were going to have programming not produced at their stations. It's by right. sending physical tapes, usually through the mail. It was it was called bicycling was the term. Mm-hmm. Um, and and why it's rare to even have an archive of this size, I think, is because tape was very expensive. We're not talking about cassette tapes that you bought, you know, for a dollar or so. We're talking primarily, as you said, seven-inch reels. So reel-to-reel tape that in many ways was prohibitively expensive in the 1960s. And so these tapes, and you may be aware of this, would get used over and over yeah. and over again. They Erased would, and right. reused. Yeah. And yeah. I yeah. don't know if you have any, any sort of background or sense of, of like of you know if these tapes you have maybe they're mislabeled because that was re- it was labeled for a prior recording or something like that yes that was the case and in fact we did get some tapes back where um the people who were reformatting them at george blood audiovisual in philadelphia had said there's nothing on this it's completely blank uh, um got fortunately that only happened with like three or four tapes mm-hmm. and out of 600 that was pretty good um, but yeah, the, uh, the tape stock is actually quite poor. And when I heard from Bill Thomas about this project, um, he had said, yeah, we, we didn't have any money. So we were just reusing tapes over and over, whatever we had lying around the station, that's what we used. Mm-hmm. And so they were using the cheapest possible format. And what that amounted to for us was a lot of extra time spent having to bake these tapes because most of them had such advanced sticky shed that they even needed like further preservation work done on them because baking the tapes just simply wasn't enough. So baking the tape, tell us what that means. So um, when a tape has sticky shed syndrome, um, like a tree. Like what? What does that mean? Sticky. Uh, what it was? Sticky shed syndrome. Like what? What does that even mean? It's it's hard to visualize. Okay, so it's a condition created by the deterioration of the binders in magnetic tape. So it's shedding stuff. Stuff is coming so off it's the tape. Physically shedding. Yeah. Um, mm. So the magnetic tape holds the iron oxide um, coating to its plastic carrier. Um, and so the deterioration renders the tape unusable because some kinds of binder are known to break down over time due to the absorption of moisture. So the recording is just coming off, literally. It's, it's sort of literally shedding, coming, coming off, off the yeah. tape. And um, it'll if you if you wind the tape on a on a playback machine and it has sticky shed, it's going to make a really high-pitched squeal. And then if you look at your tape head, you'll see like the tape wow. is actually physically coming off. An and it can, be, nightmare. it can be temporarily fixed um, by baking it at a relatively low temperature. I want to say 130 degrees Fahrenheit for a minimum of eight hours. Right. So the, so the tape goes into a special tape oven. And yep. as I understand it, that's sort of a, um, then the clock is ticking. Then you, get, then you get one chance to run it through a machine before the baking process itself actually um, uh, accelerates that particular object's uh, demise. 
Yeah, so it bas- it temporarily halts the process, basically dries out the tape, so it stops absorbing the moisture, mm-hmm. and then you can get your uh, your playback, and yeah, it might be the last one you ever get. Not necessarily, but you have to kind of treat it that way, right. and um, so you do your get your digital copy, and we actually still save the tapes, because you just never know. Sure. <laughs> Maybe. Which format is going to last? But yeah, they so these tapes are in such rough shape that um, GBAB had to do more extensive preservation work um, on them beyond the baking. And this is where we're getting sort of outside of my range of experience. Sure. I don't really know what they did, but it was something. <laughs> that, that's fine. I, I wanted to get a sense from you um, if you know why the collection ends in the early '80s. Do do you have a sense of that, or do you have uh, know an explicit reason for that? That's a good question. Um, I'm guessing, well, there could be a number of factors. Um, We do have some cassettes, and I suspect those go a little bit later, uh, possibly into the 90s. But there we have, you know, kind of the switch from analog to digital just beginning. And I don't know that um, the stations felt compelled to continue doing the program exchange. I know the organization was still going strong at that time, but for whatever reason, they just kind of stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't actually know. Um, yeah, I, do, I can only guess. Yeah. I just wondered, yeah, because I think it's during the mid to late 80s, you have a switch over, right, to, to stations starting to use things like cassettes or digital audio right. tape. And then that's also when the Pacifica Satellite Network starts to come into existence. And so okay. stations start having an opportunity to, to get programs that are distributed live yeah. via mm-hmm. satellite rather than, ha- you know, so they can get things that are, you know, not old, not a week or two or more weeks old. And certainly uh, stations would distribute their programming as well as Pacifica programming over the satellite yeah. system beginning in the late 80s. You know, okay. I think it's, yeah, there's a lot of these different factors that go on. But, you know, it's it's an unintended consequence, it seems to me then, is that because there was not the the, the circulation of tapes in the same way, now a lot of these programs that might have been aired and might have been produced are possibly just lost to time. Yes, unfortunately, I think that's the case with most radio, not just community. Um, right. It's it's pretty unique, actually, to have had a group of stations, hundreds of stations, save their programs like this. Because they stations have never made a habit of doing this, especially commercial radio, and they still don't. I mean, NPR is really the only one that I know of that ever since they started their first broadcast in 1971, they made a copy of every single program they ever did and cataloged it. So they have their entire history. It's actually, we have it at Maryland, um, preserved on reel-to-reel tapes. And they're now in the process of migrating all of that um, to digital formats. But yeah, it's... I think that's another thing, getting back to the question about what makes this unique, um, just the fact that it exists <laughs> makes it unique, and that there is some order to it. I mean, every tape had a number, um, and they're numbered consecutively and on the shelf in consecutive order, and we actually do have some printed material that describes a lot of the programs on these tapes. Outside. And we're so, th- I guess... So it's sort yeah. of serendipitous, I guess, that there was a program exchange because then that necessitated some sort of organization and sharing of this material. And, yeah. and maybe that's why it even exists, is just because they had to. I think that's true. 
Um, definitely. We're on the line with Laura Schnitger, the curator of uh, broadcast archives at the University of Maryland, and we're talking about this very unique collection of community radio programming, which exists because it was uh, really the founding of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Uh, these tapes of shows from throughout the United States uh, that were being produced at community stations around around the nation uh, were being uh, sent in the mail, and that collection is now mostly digitized is that fair to say oh no no I, I <laughs> a, a huge was bite true. was taking out taken out of the pie but you still have an, a lot left yeah we made a significant dent that is for sure wow. but we have um and we don't even know because i keep finding nfcb tapes on other shelving areas um sure. we have about five thousand total and we were able to digitize with this grant 600 wow how did you make a determination wow. of where to start you know what we started with tape number one and <laughs> just went down the line because we wow. knew they were all um they were all going to be important um but once we made our initial inventory we did have to go in and take a harder look um at what we had and realized that for example we had 25 odd tapes that were children's programming and while that's interesting and unique um, we decided that there were probably some other tapes in there that should be part of this first batch. So we kind of reprioritized. And then I also discovered that we had 47 tapes from the Feminist Radio Network, which was technically part of the NFCB. And I wanted to get those in there as well. So we switched those out and we readjusted our inventory before we sent it out for digitization. So what was, was, I hear sort of at work a kind of a curatorial impulse, right, in, in choosing yeah. these tapes from the feminist collection over the 25 tapes of children's programming. Can you, can yeah. you give me a sense of what that editorial judgment was? Yeah, um, well, we have a ton of materials available, both print and audiovisual, um, about educational programming and children's programming, and they're no less important than anything else we have. I just want to make that clear. Um, but what we never have done was give access to anything like the Feminist Radio Network mm. before. And at a time, I think, when we're all sort of, I hope, looking to hear more women's voices in media and in media history, it seemed like a really timely addition. Let's listen to a clip from a program from the collection called Writing About Women's Lives. This is Alice Walker. There's a, a, a story that I, I just bought as uh, one of my duties as a part-time editor at Ms. Magazine by a young woman named Intozaki Shange. And uh, she, the thing about the story that I liked was that uh, she had really not left out anything. It's a story of a woman who grew up as a weaver's daughter in Charleston, and it follows her life, her, her daily life, uh, in Los Angeles, and in the story, I mean, the story is not, the story is about her relationship with, with her man, but uh, she throws into the story the recipes um, of the, the, the meals that she cooks. She puts into it steps on how to weave yourself. She gives instruction in the story. It's all, all in the story. And I was thinking when I read this that, that all of this richness is, um, is usually left out. I mean, when women sit down to write, uh, when they did sit down to write, they, 
made a real effort not to add any of this stuff that seemed, you know, like women's work. And she made just the other choice of putting it all in so that the story actually has the most wonderful vibrancy and, and, and you can almost smell it. I mean, it, it, um, it has texture and it's, it's just terrific. It has a kind of uh, luminous fullness that um, you find in the novels uh, and work of, of Latin American writers often. Uh, and I, I hope that this is something that women will continue to, to do, to um, exploit or use everything that, that they are. Grace Paley. I, I can't say that I make a definite, that, I, that I, uh, I say, oh, I'm only going to write about women. But I do find that, uh, that I began to write uh, stories because there was something that was so appalling to me in, um, in the relations between women and men and, and that uh, I, when I did begin to write, I began to write thinking, oh, fool, nobody's going to read this because it's not interesting because it's, 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 uh, it's about women's lives. I think it's all right to write about men. I don't, I don't think that's the problem. See, I, don't, I think when, it's turned, when the question is turned into something like that, we're put in a funny, one is put in a, in a false position. I think that this is, that this is a, a, um, uh, a time that when, when women's, women's lives have always been extremely interesting, and yet they have never been uh, really talked about in the true way in the real way they are, like w women have been written about if they went off and did something fantastic or with Joan of Arc or her cousin or something like that. <laughs> but, yeah, right, but, but uh, uh, the story that Alice told you uh, uh, is sort of, I don't, you see, I don't think we're through that yet. I think we're not through the lives of women yet. Now's a clip from the NFCB audio collection, writing about women's lives. And was there were there other kinds of heuristics that you employed here to, uh, with making some of these editorial decisions? Well, I mean, to be honest, when you're you're writing a grant application, you want to get the juiciest stuff in there that you can. I mean, what they're looking to fund are um, projects that do you know kind of help shore up a lot of the inequalities and the imbalance in representation. Um, in media history, so we wanted to make sure that we had a really good um, sampling that demonstrated that community radio has always been um, a platform for just that, for local communities and for people of all backgrounds and experiences. Well, so, and, and it's interesting looking at at the list of, you know, the massive list of things that have been digitized so far, and and there's so much to to community radio history in there. You have some interviews with prominent community radio founders like mm -hmm. Lorenzo Milam, um, a, a sampler of KPFA programming, an interview with Jeremy Landsman, another community radio pioneer, mm -hmm. um, as well as, you know, some fascinating sounding things like, uh, you know, something called Marijuana from 1976. Uh, yeah, I haven't listened to that yet. <laughs> I really want to. And things about, you know, the Black Panthers mm -hmm. and um, the last days of various stations, an analysis of Ronald Reagan's speech patterns, which sounded yep. really intriguing to me. <laughs> right. And isn't that just like kind of the off the wall thing you would find at a community station and probably nowhere else? 
<laughs> exactly. And, um, and there, you know, there are a few college radio tidbits in there too. So yeah. I was curious about that. If you could, if you could talk about some of the college radio things you found in the collection. Well, I'm still sorting through it myself, but I was intrigued when I found um, one of the programs or one of the tapes files now um, labeled uh, WGTB-FM Closure. And so that was Georgetown student-run station. And they still do have a student-run station, but they, they broadcast online, or I should say they stream online. Um, but this was WGTB back in the day. It was a carrier current station, and then they had an FM license, um, which they eventually sold to the University of the District of Columbia, which I think most people agreed was a huge mistake because this was a really, really vital station, not just for the campus community, but for the D.C. community. This is where a lot of um, the D.C. punk musicians first got their chance because um, WGTB was the only ones playing, you know, the local punk music. Um, so when the station closed down, it was upsetting to a lot of the people involved, of course, and it was a controversial decision. Um, and I, I had never been entirely clear on exactly why. I had heard that, oh, they shut down because they refused to broadcast Georgetown basketball. Um, and then I heard, no, it was because of the super liberal content of a lot of their programming. Um, so when I started listening to this, this program that we found in the collection, I realized, well, these are the voices of the people who work for the station saying why it was shut down and who did it and who they talked to and what they knew and what they didn't know. So it's like a firsthand account of what exactly happened there. And I don't wow. think we have that for, yeah, a lot of college stations just sort of go away um, or community stations, you know, they just shut down and nobody ever really knows why. So this is a really strong record. Um, and certainly it's, it's, you know, a group of perspectives. It's maybe not the entire story, but it's something. We were told that William Shorman, Mary Parrish's superior, would finish the reading. We weren't told what they, you know, that we would go off the air at the end of Bill Shorman's statement. With this reading of this statement, WGTB-FM is temporarily discontinuing broadcasting pending the licensee's reorganization of the station's operation. We did not know we were off the air. It was like such a shock, and no one in the other room would tell us. We just immediately began continuing the open forum, responding to the statement. And then Jerry finally got up while I was talking. And so it was about 10 minutes more, she came back on and goes, you know, Jude, we're off the air. It's about 9.20. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, so um, I thought this can't be true. Nobody would do anything like this. Maybe this is an, a little bit of a discussion now, and we'll go off the air at the end of this program. Or so. I, I didn't think we'd be off the air. And we, we answered to the uh, statement. We talked about how some of the things were very similar to the things that we had been asking for from the university for years. Voices from a half hour documentary from 1972 on the closure of the Georgetown College Radio Station, WGTB, from the NFCB archives. You're listening to Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. With me are my co-hosts, Paul Reismendel and Jennifer Waits, and today we're talking with Laura Schnitzker, archivist and curator at the University of Maryland, about this incredible collection of community radio programs from the 60s and 70s from the National Federation of Community Broadcasters.
you still don't really hear enough women's perspectives in media. You just don't. Um, it's getting better, but to hear all these women talking about their lives and their experiences and the things they thought were important to write about, um, it's just, it still sounds like a novelty. It's kind of astonishing. And that makes me well, want to remind listeners to Radio Survivor that uh, Jennifer Waits put together an episode. Um, oh, back the link in the show notes to that particular what number episode that was of Radio Survivor. But we spoke with. Um, oh yeah, we spoke to Jennifer Wong about um, about you know the history of women um, in podcasting. Right, and, mm-hmm. and what Jennifer Wong had uh, had what was writing about was that. The, the history of women in podcasting was that there were women right there at the very beginning of podcasts, and yet now, as podcasts are aging and, and you know turning 12 years old or however old podcasts are, um, that contribution has been largely erased, and podcasts are considered, um, you know, women in podcasting is like a brand new thing, not like a foundational. Thing. Yeah, and she right. paralleled that with radio. Exactly. That women had a strong role in the early days of radio, and then were systematically uninvited yeah. and you know with specific mm-hmm. examples of of women who were contributing to what broadcasts sounded like in their local communities but then as radio became nationalized and and was more of a um i'll dare i say like a mainstream cultural force mm-hmm. uh those women were disinvited they were not hired yeah. to be the voices on the radio as it um grew into a real career uh these were choices that were made so it's it's a uh, it's exciting to think about um getting to hear these women's voices making community radio in this collection that the NFCB had that Laura Schnitker, you, you helped to digitize this important collection. And that's why we're talking today on radio survivor. How can people hear this for themselves? If they want to dig through the archives, is it available on a website? Yes. So they go to digital.lib.umd.edu. And in the search box, enter. you can either enter NFCB or the full title National Federation of Community Broadcasters, and you will get 612 results. Wow. And not to get too nerdy here on Radio Survivor today, but I'm curious, um, what, what are the licenses for these things? If I wanted to take them and chop them up and make my own radio program out of them, do I have, are they in the public domain? Um, that's a good question. So they're, they're streaming only from okay. uh, the website I just gave you. However, if you contact me, um, I can send you a copy of the file and y- you can chop it up and do whatever you want with it, but you're going to do that at your own risk. And Laura Schnitker, are you saying that me, Eric Klein, radio producer here at Radio Survivor can do that? Or are you extending that invitation to the listeners of Radio Survivor. Listeners can do that as well. But again, when they um, register to use our user management system, it's called Aon, they all sign an agreement saying that they know that we don't own copyright and that if they choose to repurpose any of these materials, then it's on them to contact the copyright holder. <clears throat> so with the NFCB broadcast, because they were all originally broadcast and therefore meant to be heard by the public, right. um, we did assume that that gave us some leeway as far as making them publicly available through streaming. 
And that's that's a very exciting notion, I think, for for community radio producers uh, working now in 2018 and 2019, that this material is available to them to to put into their shows. Sure. Yeah. And I think you could also make a case if you do that, you can make a case for fair use. Um, You know, you're transforming it in some way. You're commenting on it. Um, I don't know what kind of sponsorship you have, but it's possible you're not making any money from it either. So you're probably in, in pretty safe haven there. You know, this is a topic we've been diving into quite a bit here on Radio Survivor um, because of the fact that we understand how how at University of Maryland there, Laura, you had to do this assessment on the copyright and, and, and to find out yeah. what is your relative risk or liability. And I'm sure some of that was, well... There are these people who produce these programs, and strictly speaking, is it correct that they would own the copyright? <laughs> right. And so they're, yeah, whoever produced the program owns the copyright. In a lot of cases, these stations don't exist anymore. So for that, you could consider it orphaned content. Yeah, which um, is its own, we understand <laughs> that as its own complexity, right? Yeah, well, it all does, of course. And I think, you know, initially, like in the early 2000s, universities were really scared because of the whole crackdown on Napster users and stuff. (laughs) Uh, They were scared about sharing digital content. But I think that they've kind of loosened the reins a little bit and are willing to take more risks. Um, And I think they're pretty well-informed, healthy risks. And if you can show that you've done your due diligence and trying to track down the copyright owner, at least finding out, you know, whatever agreement you had with the donor or the organization um, that you can say, look, we tried, but ultimately our mission is to make this accessible. And so that's what we're doing. And if listeners to Radio Survivor are interested in this topic, uh, we, we had an extensive conversation on episode number 156 recently with um, with an expert on the public domain and and what's new in public domain. Yeah. And that's all I'll say about that. We spent an hour uh, talking about it. Is that all? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we will continue to talk about it. And, you know, right. because we, we can see that, you know, I think in people's own conception, common sense conception, they think, well, if, if the person broadcast this, you know, 40 years ago on the radio, can't be found or the station is gone, why why would someone still have an interest in it? Like in, in stopping someone from hearing it. But, but we're also talking about musical shows, right? This yeah, archive? right. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, um, this goes way back to the beginning of our conversation, but um, you did mention, so these are community stations all over the country and a few in Canada, yes, but the content actually comes from all over the world um, because one guy in particular, Robert Garfias, up at KRAB in Seattle, he also worked at KPFA, he founded the Ethnomusicology Department at the University of Washington. Mm. He went all over the world and he recorded live performances of music. And so a lot of these tapes don't even have like any kind of context in between songs or pieces. It's just music. How exciting. Um, are those in the yeah, archives? Are those available they for are. streaming? Ooh. Except they, they were his original recordings. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, as far as I we know, that. yeah. Yeah. That's actually. Which is of, different than playing records. Right. Yes. But I be- yeah, so I believe these would that, be field recordings, yeah. I believe that his work at KPFA is one of my foundational uh, community radio memories. It was one of the times where I realized that uh, that this was really something special, the, the 
you know, music DJs at community radio stations had the opportunity to create uh, bodies of work that were just were more than than what I had originally thought music DJs that were, were. Uh, for all intents and purposes, yeah. original. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's, important, that's really, like big. Right. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of unbelievable the the number of places represented just scanning through the list and the collection of all the countries and styles of music from you know Japan, Mali, Russia, India, Estonia, Latin American hits of the 1930s, right. uh, yeah. Swedish fiddle. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all Kinda like a yeah. It's all before, you know, that that thing called world music. Uh, was invented, which is exciting. So Laura Schnicker, in thinking about this National Federation of Community Broadcasters program archive that you just digitized, what what were your hopes as far as how these materials would be used after they were digitized? Um, that's a good question. So of course, um, one of our first thoughts about the potential users for this collection is educators. Um, and really, that can be educators at pretty much any level of education. So I think um, you could play this for elementary school students. You could play these broadcasts for high school students, uh, certainly college students. In fact, we're using this collection already to introduce college students to the potential of media history um, and using primary sources from broadcast history for their projects. And then um, researchers of all stripes, I think, um, will find useful information here, whether it's music or uh, queer studies, um, immigration studies, uh, political science. Um, the list just goes on and on. It, there's so much rich content. And we, so we've been getting some questions even within the past few days from people who have their own community radio collections mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that don't have an archival home at an institution and, and maybe haven't been digitized. So can people send things to you um, to be included in your collection? How does that work? And what advice would you give to somebody who might have a collection of community radio programming that they want to preserve? Well, um, the first thing I'd say is good for you for saving it and keep hanging on to it. Um, Yes, we are open to taking donations, um, but it depends on several things. First of all, we want to know what shape is the collection in? What are the formats? Um, is it going to need a lot of preservation work? Um, we also want to know what's in the collection, and this does trip up a lot of people if they just have been amassing stuff in their attics or their basements for years and years, and they want to donate it. The first thing we're going to ask is, can you please send us an inventory? And in many cases, we don't hear from them again because it's just too daunting a task, you know, um, to sit down and list it all out. But we don't have the resources to do that for everybody. So it's really helpful if people can do that ahead of time and then just email me a, a Word doc or whatever with a list of the content. And then we're going to want to know, does this content exist anywhere else? Do any other institutions have copies of these programs? Have they already been digitized? Or is this completely unique material? Yeah. Um, and so those are sort of the initial questions we ask. And if they are unique, and if the donor is willing to make an inventory, and if they're in relatively good shape, then yeah, we'll take them. 
We can't promise that we can reformat them right away. That costs money. Um, we've got a lot of priority projects sort of in the pipeline. Of course, if the donor has any money that they can send along with the collection, that'd be great. That can help us um, move it up in the, the queue for digitization. Um, but we can stabilize the materials, so they should not be in basements and attics. Yeah. And if they're sent to us, they're going to be in a climate-controlled area, uh, kept at a relatively low temperature. So if there's any degradation, um, it can slow that process. Yeah. Basements are wet. Attics yep. are hot and sometimes yeah. wet. Um, is it our digital tapes or dats? Okay. Yeah. In 2018, dats were primarily uh, used in the nineties. <laughs> correct. And now that kind yeah. of, that kind of fancy, fancy cassette tape, um, is, is, uh, not great as you're saying. That's not great. We can work with it. And in fact, they, we, we have several DAT machines in our own reformatting center, so we can do those in-house. And it goes pretty quickly, um, but those tapes have not held up well. Yeah, um, they got famous for like, not holding up well. Exactly. They were, I think, relatively cheap, and they're really small, so it's easy to stockpile them if you're, you know, collecting a series or, you know, a bunch of broadcasts. Mm -hmm. But... Other than that, they don't have a lot going for them. And they were, um, they were one of the primary, uh, you know, initial products that were digital uh, back before, you know, CDs became easy to burn, these digital audio tapes. Yeah, and CDs have raised all kinds of issues of their own. In fact, we're scrambling to reformat our CD collections ahead of our reel-to-reel -reel tapes because oh. of the prevalence of bit rot. Bit um, rot. Yeah, so that... And you can't tell if you look at a CD, if you look at the back of it, uh, where the recording is, it's not um, obvious necessarily that there's going to be anything wrong. Right. And then when you go to try to extract that data, only then you find out it's all gone. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's presented some interesting issues. And here people thought, oh, CDs are so stable and they're going to last forever. Perfect sound forever was what the record <laughs> industry called it in 1983. Uh, Laura, are those primarily CDRs, recordable CDs, or are these also uh, commercially produced CDs that are having this uh, bit rot? Both. Both. Um, it's both, and it depends on where the collection came so, from. So NPR was using pretty professional grade CDs, but not always um, because they were doing so many. Um, and then, you know, in any given set of years, the format changed slightly. So again, this is a little bit out of my range of experience, sure. but I know when NPR was asking us about um, pulling the CDs that they have from the 90s and 2000s from our shelves to reformat them, they were asking me to check and see which which exact brand of CD was it? Because they're seeing a higher percentage of loss with some and not uh, others. So this is, and these are CDs they recorded themselves. Would, it, would there be yeah. someone's, you know, Aerosmith CD from 1987? Is this, is this going to be rotting away too, or do you know it all? You know, one you bought in the store that you didn't record yourself? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I That's think we're talking question. also more about... Um, uh, uh, We're talking about CDRs, but also, yeah, uh, yeah, wave files, MP3s burned yeah. onto this uh, compact disc format off a computer. But who, gosh, right. again, you know, I think what the important thing to point out is that uh, audio formats from the past decades 
are in need of new attention if they're going to be around in future decades. And that's the work that you're engaged in, Laura Schnitger, at the Broadcast Archives at the University of Maryland. And we're talking to you because you have recently digitized about 10 to 15% of a massive collection of community radio programs that were distributed in the 70s and 80s uh, there. Mm -hmm. Before we leave, um, I just wanted to see if you could maybe highlight some of your other favorites from the collection. There's so much in there, it's a bit overwhelming, but what stood out to you? Um, Well, there was uh, one, all of the Feminist Radio Network ones um, stand out to me. And in fact, we're working on some projects um, to use those programs specifically in various um, teaching and research websites and with some of our visiting classes from the College of Journalism and Women's Studies. Um, But there's one program in particular called um, Writing About Women's Lives. And um, they interview a bunch of writers, one of whom is Alice Walker, Mm -hmm. and they all talk about their lives and their perspectives and their experiences and it's just so fascinating um, to listen to them. It, I think I mentioned this earlier, it still almost seems like a novelty to hear women's stories um, in broadcast media that way because it's still so underrepresented in, across, the, across all formats in broadcasting. And along the same lines, there's an interview with Lily Tomlin in there Um, And it's not very long. It's only about 11 minutes long. Uh, But she talks about some of the characters that she created, like Ernestine the Operator um, and Edith Ann that I I remember watching on Sesame Street. Um, And she's talking about the real life experiences she had that gave rise to these characters. And it's just so neat to hear a, a female comedian talk about her work the same way male comedians have always talked about their work. I lived in a great neighborhood, you know, I lived in a black, I grew up in a black neighborhood, lived in an old apartment house that was filled with every old kind of person in the world. I mean, the most radical political person, the most conservative political person, the most uneducated person, the most educated, you know, the most sensitive, the most, I mean, everything. I mean, I, I was exposed to so many great kinds of people and, and I literally was being, I mean, I li- like I, there was one lady in the building, Mrs. Rupert, who was a botanist. She had two sons in the CIA. This is back in the 50s. That was heavy back then. Right. She was very conservative, you know, very reactionary. And I used to spend all my evenings with her. You know, I mean, she was like the building eccentric. On the Edith Ann album, I I call her Mrs. Robert, and I say, Mrs. Robert wears fox fur, hat and fox furs to empty the garbage. And she, you know, she was, we had our garbage cans were outside, and she would come out her front door in a hat and fox furs and gloves to empty her garbage. You know, she was so proper. Well, um, I used to spend evenings with her. She was like the building crazy lady, you know? And so, and I was the only kid she took a shine to. And so I was here, I was privy. I got on the inside of her house and everything. Cause see her front windows were filled with plants. It was like a jungle, you know? And, and we thought she was fascinating and her, bl- her back door was sealed up and she, you know, and she'd never conversed with any of the neighbors. And here, so I, she made friends with me and I would go over there for, for like four years. I spent every night with her, every evening. Uh, during the week because her husband worked for the railroad and he worked afternoons and I would go over there and I would walk her dog she had two chihuahuas I'd walk her dogs first then we would go in the house we'd listen to Gabriel Heater (laughs) (laughs) 
Then we'd read the New York Times from page to page. Fantastic. And she'd work out the crossword puzzle while I, and I had to look up all the words in the Britannica that I didn't understand. And, and in, the, in all during this, I'd get little lectures on how to be a lady. And because she was, she was going to teach me how to marry above my station. You know, she was preparing me for that eventuality, see, that I was going to pull myself out of this deprived environment. And so she was teaching me how to be a lady, well-spoken, how to sit, how to do everything. And then after we'd read the Times, we'd listen to Drew Pearson. And then we'd, on the, this is on the radio, and then we'd have tea, tea and little cookies, you know. But she always had exotic teas, like, you know, raspberry tea and stuff like that that I'd never even heard of. Anyway, but, you know, but I even at that time, and at the same time, another friend in the building, well, she's a woman, a grown woman, and I, she, I'm still good friends with her. In fact, well, I, this was printed in one of the newspapers here. I just recall it. But just on the other end of the spectrum, the building, the, the woman in the building who was like the building hussy, you know, because she was young and very sexy and her boyfriend, she was divorced and her boyfriend slept over. He was a communist. I mean, an, uh, you know, I mean, a radical communist who was an organizer and, and who knows what else, right? And very active. And I was, con I was indoctrinated constantly by both of them. And I could see that they were both were, you know, a little on the crazed side. So where'd you end up? So I didn't. So I, did, I just saw that they were people, basically. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that there was there was no answer, really. Certainly no. You know, there was no and no set of there was no set of dogma or anything that you know that was an answer to anything. And she sounds so fresh and so determined, and she just she has a great voice, all her own. Um. <laughs> One of my favorite things yeah. about community radio interviews with celebrities is we've heard their voices before, but they are often being packaged or presented in a certain way when they're doing, you know, when Lily Tomlin is on The Tonight Show, Lily Tomlin is, a, is not the same Lily Tomlin as when they're uh, speaking on the microphones of a community radio station. They, they do right. have an opportunity to... to to, to speak their mind more. And I, I love that about, I've heard that with different community radio interviews um, with, with especially celebrities from like the 70s and 80s that, that they're, you know, now we have podcasts where celebrities have a chance to, to talk more, um, to talk. <laughs> they, they just have an right. opportunity to talk a lot more than they used to. There's a bunch of episodes of Spectrum um, hosted and produced by Carlos Hagen who worked at KPFA, um, and he was a Chilean immigrant who, when he came to the United States, was appalled at our broadcast system and couldn't believe that it wasn't a regular thing on radio to have people just get on the air and talk about music that they loved. It was all so, you know, overproduced and slickly packaged and um, sort of homogenous. So he he created a show called Spectrum hmm. and he talked about all kinds of music everywhere. And this was like kind of early ethnography work that he was doing. And in one show in particular called the sounds and soul of rural America, he went to the Appalachian mountains um, here in the Eastern United States. And he visited with people who lived in these areas and who had their music. And he talked about, you know, these being some of the first white communities that settled in the United States. And it's just interesting the way he treated these white rural communities like ethnic groups, like any other ethnic group. Mm -hmm. um, 
that that you would study if you were uh, an ethnomusicologist. And he played a version of uh, Amazing Grace in its its original sort of Scottish incarnation with the bagpipes and it sounds really lofty and um, and classic. And then he played a version um, played on the dulcimer in I want to say rural Kentucky. The dulcimer is made to sound a lot like those bagpipes, but of course it was adapted in various ways uh, to blend with the music that they were hearing around them. Uh, but the song survived, it just it just changed and adapted with these communities. And I love that. I love that he traced music history that way, that he took these examples and he could show you, listen, you can hear the changes that were made when these people moved from a different land um, to a brand new one. And I don't think there were too many people doing that in his day. I mean, this predated NPR and everything. So, um, I, yeah, I, I think his efforts on spectrum were so underrated. I think more people should know about what he was doing. So we have a bunch of those. There's, um, I want to say something around a dozen episodes of spectrum in this collection that we digitized. How wonderful! Yeah, we'll definitely I, play a clip of that. Yeah, and I yeah. can't, I can't wait to, I can't, I can't wait to dig in and and spend yeah. some of my time listening to Spectrum streaming there. Thank you so much for that opportunity for the work that everyone uh, put in there at the University of Maryland and and beyond. Right, I'm sure there was people outside of the university that contributed to getting this work preserved and digitized. Yes, yes. So, Laura, thank you so much for bringing this collection to our attention in the first place. And, okay. and I'm glad that we're able to share it with more people through the show. And, and I know I'm also really looking forward to diving in. And you piqued my interest about even more of the material. Good. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, it's a fun rabbit hole. My thanks again to Laura Schnitker, archivist and curator at the University of Maryland, Thanks, of course, also to Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits, my co-hosts. My name is Eric Klein. You've been listening to Radio Survivor. If you didn't catch the whole thing and you want to hear it again, we are a podcast. You can hear us on the internet at radiosurvivor.com or anywhere where you get your podcasts. You can email us. The email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And if you wanted to check out anything else that you've learned today, uh, there will be links in the show notes on our website, radiosurvivor.com. Uh, you know, you can listen to long versions of the short clips that you heard today. Just follow the links at radiosurvivor.com. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.